Okay, good evening, everybody. Same person and online. Our topic for tonight is Soviet anti-Semitism in the post-war era. So we're, if last time, two weeks ago, we discussed Lenin and Stalin, and we got through the wartime experience, and at the end of the war, the Soviets are liberators of uh, Eastern Europe, of Nazi-occupied Eastern Europe, and so in the eyes of some of the survivor population, the Red Army is a heroic army. But uh, very shortly after that, the Soviet Union once again turns into the, a foe of Jewry. But not right away. As we shall see, there is this brief window of opportunity when Soviet Jewish policy is uh, actually benevolent. But a very short window. Now, what I wanted to do tonight is discuss uh, some of the more famous episodes of anti-Jewish persecution that happens in the USSR and in the wider Soviet bloc in the late 40s, early 50s, and then spend most of tonight's session on their immigration policy, which for decades was a problem, and a problem that American Jewry tried to do something about. Okay, so the first thing will be the doctor's plot. The doctor's plot was a plot that never really existed. It was a false conspiracy. Uh, it was a fiction. But as it's happening, or as it, the accusations are being hurled, it seems very real, and people believed it. Um, the death of Andrei Zhdanov, who was a big macher in Soviet uh, communist apparatus, on August 31st, 1948, is where this really begins. August 31st, 1948, uh, he dies, and there's an accusation made by Lydia Tumashak uh, who was one of the prominent doctors, that Zidanov was deliberately given bad care, that this was essentially a medical murder. The doctors allowed him to die. How old was he? Uh, in his early 50s. Uh, then, in March of 1951, after being under interrogation for a few months and essentially being tortured to death, uh, Yaakov Ettinger who is tortured to death, a Jewish doctor, a prominent Jewish doctor, writes a secret letter, so to speak. Well, it probably wasn't him. It was probably a fabrication. But a secret letter is revealed in which Ettinger supposedly confesses to the medical murder of Alexander Shabakov in 1945 as part of a conspiratorial plot. And the regime, but in particular Stalin, ties these two episodes together and says we have a problem on our hands. Doctors especially Jewish doctors, are deliberately giving bad care to high-ranking Soviet officials because they want to kill them. And this is a, some sort of a nefarious plot to overthrow the government and to install some other regime. So the accusation of this so-called Jewish conspiracy uh, was that it was directed by the United States government. So we're going to tie together a lot of loose strands poisoned Soviet-American relations. Remember, Soviet-American relations had been close as they were collaborating during the war to defeat Nazism. But from late 1945 and onward, uh, it's getting bad. Winston Churchill gives his Iron Curtain speech in 1946. There's the long telegram by George Kennan in 1947. Uh, threat of nuclear war between Truman and Stalin in the late, uh, late 40s. The situation is bad, and to the extent that you can blame uh, un 
unwanted Soviet citizens or detested Soviet citizens of some kind of crime, well, the best way to do it was to say you're, a, you're being handled by the United States. And if your ethnic background is that of a Jew, it's even easier to get away with. So 37 doctors were arrested and also their wives were arrested. 17 of these doctors were Jewish. Uh, why was this happening? So after World War II, Stalin was in ill health. We don't exactly know why he was in ill health, but Molotov was running the government for a while. And he wanted closer relations with the West. He wanted to relax censorship. And he also had a Jewish wife. He wasn't the only uh, leading party figure who had a Jewish wife. Voroshilov also had a Jewish wife. And these wives were friends with Golda Meir during her tenure as Israeli ambassador in late 1948. So we now have high-ranking officials with Jewish spouses, with ties to Israel, a resurgent Jewish nationalism in the Soviet Union, a, a, a neurotic and paranoid Stalin fearful for his own physical health, which is in decline, examples of people who had bad, bad medical care supposedly and died. All this comes together in a scheme to arrest and execute as many of these people as possible. Well, there were plans, supposedly, for a mass deportation of Soviet Jewry to the Soviet East, to Asia, to east of the Urals, to Siberia and beyond, that was never implemented. However, we have evidence that suggests that four concentration camps uh, was four concentration camps were under construction or they were ordered to be constructed in late 1952, early 1953 to accommodate the vast Soviet Jewish population. Is there any word of the extent compared to the Nazis? Uh, well, since it was never carried out, we don't really know. It's hard to say. But uh, all this comes to an end when Stalin dies on March 5th, 1953. Stalin's death probably was facilitated by Lavrenti Beria and others who wanted him dead because they were feel for, fearful for their own existence because Stalin's paranoia was reaching to the highest levels and nobody was safe from a potential purge. But um, these uh, leading Jewish figures, including the doctors, were in danger of execution. And then the thinking was that some... Uh, representative sample of the Jewish intelligentsia would appeal to the government to, to evacuate the Jewish population, lest there be ethnic Russian reprisals against Jews. And that would be the pretext to move a large body of the population thousands of miles to the east for their own protection, so to speak. Of course, this never comes to pass. And after Stalin's death, Khrushchev um, disavows the whole plot and says it was a fabrication and a lot of people who were arrested and who were not killed in the various purges were released in the early to mid-1950s from their incarceration. So this was a very scary time between 48 and 53. Uh, not just doctors were being arrested, but a whole lot of others too. Now, who are these others? So the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee was established in 1941. What was the point of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee? Well, during the war, it was important for the Soviet Union to utilize the various ethnic populations within the Soviet Union to um, unite in the cause 
of defending the motherland against the Nazi invasion, number one, because not every ethnic group is necessarily so pro-Soviet, since the Soviet Union was dominated by ethnic Russians and people had an axe to grind. So you got to rally around the flag, but also turn to the West in seeking American support for the Soviet war effort, in particular, that Lend-Lease, which was invented to save England, should also be utilized to save Russia, which it was ultimately, um, and to raise money among gullible Westerners to give to the Soviet war effort. So the Jewish anti-fascist committee went to the United States and interacted with Einstein, with other important figures, with Stephen Wise, other prominent American Jews, to raise awareness of the cause of the Soviet fight against Nazism. Who was the leader of this group? Solomon Michaels. And he was killed in a fake car accident in 1948 under Stalin's orders. Why? So the the Jewish anti-fascist committee, which was patriotically Soviet, had too many contacts in the West. And once the Cold War begins, that's a big red flag. No pun intended. All right. If you have too many contacts in the West, then the suspicion is you're feeding them information or you're revealing anti-Soviet propaganda, whatever it might be. So these Jews are marked for destruction. Uh, On August 12th, 1952, it was the night of the murdered poets. 13 Jews, including several very prominent Yiddish poets, were executed in a a prison in Moscow. Uh, At around this time, thousands of Jews were uh, arrested under the charge that they were rootless cosmopolitans. Classic Soviet expression, rootless cosmopolitans, it's just a code word for Jew. Um, This was a, a, a dangerous time if you were of anyone of any renown and you were a Jew in Stalin's last year. Now, the other uh, episode did not happen in the Soviet Union, but happened in a Soviet bloc country. And that is the Prague trials or the Rudolf Slansky trials of 1952. The background here is that Soviet bloc countries did not uh, come into being after the war necessarily as a Soviet bloc country. They come into being because war is over. Occupation forces are going their own separate ways, and various national movements want to have uh, self-determination and reconstitute the republics that existed in the pre-war era. Are they going to be communist? Not necessarily. But because they're in the Soviet orbit, it's going to be very easy for the Communist Party in that country to muscle its way to the top and establish uh, one-party rule and persecute any opponents. Okay, but are all communisms the same? No. Is everyone going to be subservient to Russian, to Stalinist communism? Not necessarily. Who most famously bucks the trend? Czechoslovakia. Well, before Czechoslovakia, Tito in Yugoslavia. So Titoism is not Stalinist communism. It's its own own brand. Essentially, I wouldn't say neutral in the Cold War, but an island unto itself, a Bria So the other communist parties in Soviet bloc countries now were not necessarily so reliable. And Stalin is ordering people who he can't trust to be brought up on trumped up charges and executed. 
So in Czechoslovakia, you have a, a, a split in 1948 um, between various factions, and Slansky is able to take control. But uh, Stalin orders a purge. And the claim is that there was a Zionist imperial summit that had taken place in Washington, D.C. in 1947, involving President Truman, Secretary of the Treasury Morgenthau, David Ben-Gurion, and Moshe Sharet of the Jewish Agency. This sounds right out of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And there was a linkage made between Zionism, Trotskyism, and Titoism, and the claim that Czechoslovak officials were involved in this cabal. So... Uh, 13 men were executed in 1952 under charges of uh, sedition and being involved in a Western Zionist conspiracy. Of the 13 who were executed, 10 were Jews. This was a show trial, plain and simple. Everybody knew it was a show trial, and Jews were the main target, as well as political advers- or perceived political adversaries of Stalin. Okay, so that's enough with uh, the various uh, episodes of doom and gloom and execution by the government. Let's now spend the rest of our our evening discussing emigration policy. So despite numerous revisions of the Soviet constitution, it never permitted discrimination against minority groups. Beginning in 1917, in the earliest iteration of of, uh, Soviet lawmaking, extending through its major revisions in 1936 and even post-war in 1952 and onward, there never was any lawful persecution of an ethnic minority. But the reality was quite otherwise. The reality is this is a Russian-dominated state, and there were many other ethnic groups, and they didn't always uh, receive fair treatment. The Jews received worse treatment than anybody else. Uh, How so? Jews were not even allowed membership into the Council of Nationalities, that the Belarusians, the Ukrainians, the Tatars, the Kazakhs, the Uzbeks, everybody had some political representation. The Jews did not. They were not identified as a, as a, as a legitimate nationality. Jews were expected to conform to Russian norms, give up religion, give up the spoken Yiddish language, and to stay away from self-determination ideologies, a.k.a. Zionism. Uh, they were legally underrepresented, and there was blatant discrimination against Jews in housing, education, and employment. And there was the suppression of Jewish culture and the execution and torture of the leading representatives of that Jewish culture. And yet, the USSR denied Jews the ability to emigrate. So it's a little bit of a paradox. They make the Jews' lives miserable so they would want to leave, but then you don't let them leave. If you, if you didn't like them that bad, you know, that, if you hated them that much, let them go. So why was this the emigration policy? Why was it so restricted? Uh, it was not simply a matter of deep-rooted Russian, uh, the, the, the anti-Semitic traditions of the Russian people dating back to czarist times. That's part of it, certainly, but that's not all of it, or even most of it. It was also not merely Stalinist tyranny, because it continued under Khrushchev and under Brezhnev and under Andropov and under Chernenko, and would only change under Gorbachev in 1985 or 86 in any any significant way. So what were the issues motivating this uh, government policy of keeping people caged into the vast realm of the USSR? 
So one thing is, the government was nervous about the departure of the Jewish intelligentsia, who made major contributions to Soviet science, medicine, and engineering. That Jews were disproportionately educated compared to the rest of the population. And this despite the fact that getting into universities was sometimes difficult if you had a Jewish identity on your passport. Um, so there are a whole lot of Jews making material contributions to Soviet society uh, in the hard sciences and in industry where it really matters. So Stalin, followed by Khrushchev and Brezhnev, do not want this sort of brain drain to the West, or for that matter, to Israel. They want to keep these people in-house. Secondly, there's a fear of international criticism coming from non-communist countries or from the escapees themselves who would then prove that discord and tyranny are hallmarks of the Soviet regime. Remember, the Soviet Union wants to portray itself as a major world power that is internally cohesive and coherent uh, and a worker's paradise within the you know, Marxist doctrine. They don't want anybody in the Western world to know that life stinks behind the Iron Curtain, that people would like to leave in large numbers, and therefore you can't let them leave. Because if they were to leave, they tell everybody how bad it is. Okay, and also, at least early on, um, social unrest and immigration issues were concealed by the police from top political leaders. So th- there's reason to suspect that in the early days of the, of the first post-war era, the Politburo was unaware of the extent to which people wanted to get out and which, to which you know, the Soviet Union was a failure insofar as its citizens rejected the, that way of life. They would eventually come to be keenly aware of this, but at least early on, it may have been essentially covered up by low-level policing. Okay. But there was a time when the borders were open. We should not think that the borders were hermetically sealed all the time. Between May of 1945 and late 1947, early 1948, the border was basically wide open. Uh, Post-war Russia was weak, economically weak. And Stalin needed to unite everybody in a project of economic rebuilding. Emigration was not prohibited, nor was it prosecuted in that window between 45 and early 48. At this time, there was a reawakening of Jewish identity, and thousands were allowed to leave. In fact, the Soviet Union coerced Poland to take back many Jews in a reparation deal. This became known as the Bricha, escape from the Soviet Union. There were many Jews who lived in Poland before the war. What did they do? If they lived in eastern Poland, in the section of the country that was in the uh, Molotov and Ribbentrop Pact under Soviet rule, then when Operation Barbarossa happens, having spent two years under Soviet domination and happy to not be under the, under the Nazis, what do people do? They flee eastward. I, I have in my shul, mem- a member of my shul, who that, that was her experience, that she grew up in Poland, but ended up spending the war years and part of the post-war years deep in, in, in Siberia, in, in deep in internal Russia. So what happened to these people after the war? Some of them were forcibly repatriated out of the Soviet Union back to Poland. So uh, why this liberal approach? Why allow people to leave 
to flee to the Western sectors of Europe and therefore maybe end up in America or flee the Soviet Union to get to Palestine or, or, or early state Israel. Why was this the policy? So a few explanations. One, the Russians wanted Jews to participate in the reconstruction of a new Poland and a new Poland made in the Soviet image and not in a Polish Catholic nationalist image. Secondly, Stalin believed that Jews would not abandon Judaism or Jewish identity in favor of communist ideology. So they were likely to contribute to the country's instability at a time when Russia couldn't afford any instability. This is a key point. It's a key point. Everyone likes to believe that their ideology is wonderful and that with the proper uh, education of your counterparty, they'll learn to know how right you really are. You know, if I'm convinced that I'm right, I can convince other people that I'm right. But Stalin came to a conclusion that as much as he was a Stalinist and the Soviet leadership believed in communism and the glorious future of the Soviet Union, there were going to be people who would not buy into it. And Jews were not going to buy into it, at least in any significant number. So therefore, what? Let them go. Those Jews who don't want to be part of this uh, Marxist paradise, leave. At some point, the border will close, but for, least, for a little while, if you don't want in, you're out. Get out. Go. Also, there was this brief period of Soviet pro-Zionism. Now, remember, we learned last time that Lenin and Stalin were very anti-Zionist, at least in the early part of the 20th century. But for a variety of reasons that are specific to the mid to late 40s, the Soviet Union adopted a pro-Zionist position from about April of 1947 through early 1949. How did this manifest itself? So we've been through this a few times already. Andrei Gromyko speaking in the United Nations in favor of partition, the Soviet Union voting in favor of the partition plan, the Soviet Union uh, recognizing de jure, the state of Israel immediately upon its, uh, its creation, uh, the flood of weapons from Czechoslovakia to the Haganah and later to the IDF. So a variety of things and the opening of, of an Israeli embassy in Moscow. All these things are part of a thaw in Jewish-Soviet relations that lasts a little while and quickly comes to an end. But while that's happening, if a Jew is a Soviet citizen who wants to leave and maybe make his way to Palestine, go, so be it. Okay. Uh, and let there was yeah. a quest for Russia to get Israel and its influence. I yes, absolutely, absolutely. And fourthly, there was a thought among certain Soviet leaders. I wouldn't say that Stalin thought this, but others that Jewish emigration could bring an end to anti-Semitism. Now, how would Jewish emigration bring an end to anti-Semitism? So this is along the lines of what Polish. Uh, right-wingers thought in the 1930s that, well, we don't like Jews and there's popular disdain for Jews. If there were fewer Jews, there'd be less popular disdain for an ethnic minority because they wouldn't be here anymore. So if you're not exterminationist, if you're not a Nazi who wants to kill everyone, you're just someone who's a little bit of a bigot and the target of your animus is no longer around, then goodbye animus. And if you want to have stability and you don't want to have inter-ethnic rivalry, so good, let them go. Goodbye. It solves the problem. Okay. But why did the policy then quickly take a turn for the worse? So very shortly after Israel's establishment, well, even before that, the border is shut. 
and Soviet-Israeli relations sour. So one thing is relations between the, the United States and the Soviet Union took a turn for the worse. Stalin understood that, Ru- that Russia was weak and vulnerable, and its solution was to expand the Soviet sphere of influence into Eastern Europe and to parts of Asia, meaning Korea, Manchuria, Northern Iran, but mostly the focus is on uh, Eastern Europe, Eastern Bloc countries. So the key to this strategy, in order for this strategy to work, where the USSR expands its sphere of influence and doesn't reveal its internal weaknesses to the outside world, well, how do you do that? The answer is you conceal things from the West by limiting all interaction with countries outside the Eastern Bloc. Meaning this is the real reason for the descent of the Iron Curtain, that nobody outside can know how horrible things are on the inside. Because if they knew, they knew we, 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 they'd know we're weak and vulnerable. Um, so as, as far as emigration patterns are concerned, between 1948 and 1953, so the last five years of Stalin's regime, when he's busy you know, killing off the Jewish anti-fascists and arresting doctors and arresting thousands of others and co- contemplating concentration camps in the East. Okay, during that time, only 18 Soviet Jews were allowed to leave the country for Israel. In five years, in a population of two and a half to three million Jews, only 18 were allowed to move to Israel. Thousands were arrested for Zionist agitation, which was regarded as anti-Soviet propaganda. Contacts with Israelis, even with diplomats, was reason for imprisonment. Foreign correspondence was reviewed by security officials, and even Russian Jewish soldiers who had liberated Poland and and Nazi camps were interrogated about their contacts. Because remember, the Soviet army went as far as Berlin, okay, went deep into uh, Central Europe. And there were many Jewish soldiers in the Soviet army. They interacted with American soldiers, with British soldiers, with survivors, with citizens, with civilians all throughout Central Europe. So they had contacts beyond the borders of the Soviet Union. And now the, the, the security uh, official wants to know, who are you talking to? Who do you know outside our borders? You're a suspect. Between 48 and 53, all Jewish, Hebrew, and Yiddish cultural expression was stifled. Soviet Jews were effectively silenced. They can't leave but they also can't do anything to express their Jewishness. What are they expected to do? Just blend in, shut up and take it. After Stalin's death, many prisoners were released. This was a thaw period in uh, the persecution. There was a a noticeable decrease in open anti-Semitism, and there was less persecution of Jewish cultural expression. So Khrushchev zero between 53 and say 59, 60, it wasn't good, but it was a whole lot better than the, the pre- previous half decade. Okay. Khrushchev was, was pressured into regularizing the system for applying to emigrate. And so he established under the Ministry of Internal Affairs, OVIR, the Office of Visas and Registrations, to whom you had to turn if you were a Soviet Jew who wanted to leave the country. In 1957, there were 1,185 applications to move to Israel. Of those 1,185 applications, how many do you think were permitted? A hundred. Well, a hundred is better than nothing. In 1965, 
there were 1,444 permissions granted. And in 1966, there were 1,892 permissions granted. In 1966... Is this the National Soviet Union? Uh, Soviet Union. So in, in 1966, Kosygin, who is still vying with Brezhnev for power, it's not entirely clear who's going to win that struggle when ultimately Brezhnev does and Kosygin is marginalized, but in 1966, when he's still an important player, he says, well... I'm going to facilitate family reunification, even if that means allowing Soviet citizens to leave the, the Soviet Union and move to Israel. Very nice of him. Okay, but post-1967, the refusals increase and people begin to become refuseniks and known by that term. Israeli-Soviet rela- diplomatic relations are severed after the Six-Day War. For, 18, for 19 years, they were in existence. And there was an embassy in Moscow, and there were consulates in other significant cities, notably in Riga. Um, but it all comes to an end. Now, how does Israel represent its interests in the Soviet Union after the shuttering of its embassies? The answer is through, through the Dutch. Through the, the, the Dutch uh, opened up a little office, a little cubicle in their embassy to handle Israeli interests, which were many because people wanted to leave and go to Israel. So they had to have a, 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 a bureaucratic mechanism to do that. Question? Yeah. How did somebody who applied for emigration to Israel and they were refused, wouldn't they be on some really big black list? Yes. Okay. Now we're going to get to that right now. So uh, what kinds of people were being refused? We'll, we'll find out who's being refused and then what happens to them after they get the refusal. So number one, anyone who received an education in engineering or the natural sciences was likely to be refused because they have useful knowledge. They're not just a nachschlepper or a Luftmenschen. They're educated person with uh, skills. And so the Soviet Union is not interested in losing them. Secondly, anyone who worked in the government or military, and who had access to classified information. Now, this can be defined very narrowly or very expansively. What is classified information? I mean, you could classify anything if you really wanted to. So this meant that many, many people who were in academia and had even the most tangential association with government service or the, or the military, military contractors, were likely to be refused. And that's going to be a significant number of people. And thirdly, Jewish intelligentsia, artists, musicians, and authors, in other words, not the hard sciences or government work or military work, but cultural figures whom the Soviet Union did not want to see get out there and badmouth the Soviet Union once you're across the border. Okay, so the government introduced procedures to discourage people from even attempting to leave the country. Let's go through some of these mechanisms. Number one, you needed to have a direct invitation from an international relative. So if you don't know anybody abroad, you're out of luck. Did most Soviet Jews have some relative elsewhere in the world? Yeah, probably, but did you know who they were? Could you contact them? You know, could you pick up the phone and call them? Not so simple. Ah, but even if you did have an international relative abroad, and especially even one in Israel, and they were inclined to send you an invitation, the next hurdle was invitations were often conveniently lost, lost. 
in the Soviet mail. In other words, the censor would see what this was and throw it in the garbage, and you would never get it, and you'd never know. Okay, third point, you needed written permission from all nuclear family members. Well, all right, that might sound like easy enough. After all, if we all want to immigrate, the Soviet Union is terrible, you know, we're proud Jews, we want to go to Israel, everybody's going to be on board. Well, not necessarily. What if you have a disgruntled spouse who doesn't want to go? You want to go and they don't. Or an ex-spouse or a soon-to-be ex-spouse. Marriage is on the rocks. And now the, the disgruntled partner can use this as a cudgel against you to refuse. Or you have parents who are uh, not interested in being separated from their children. The kid is gung-ho about moving to Eretz Israel, or for that matter, any, anywhere else. But the parents don't want to be left alone in their old age. And they refuse. Or the parents have reached the age of senility. And they can't sign off on it. And there's nothing you can do about it. There's no appeals process. Okay. And also, the next one is the education tax. This, does anyone remember when this was a political issue in the United States in the early 1970s? Before my time, but some of you might remember. Uh, in the Soviet Jewry movement, this was a big deal. That the Soviet Union wanted to impose an education tax on any emigre. Because after all... There was a free K through 12 education, free university education. We, the Soviet state, spent so much money making you into an educated individual. And now you're going to walk away and move to, to Eretz Israel, to Israel, or to America, or to Canada, or wherever. And you're going to take your education with you. you got to pay us for it. Okay? Education tax. Weren't they, said, weren't they not allowed to go into colleges? Who? The Jews? No, no, they could, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not, like, not like Poland? No, 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 no. Now, people who applied to leave were often accused of espionage, of anti-Soviet activity, and sent to prison. Now, not everybody, but it could happen that just the application alone would get you in such hot water that you went to jail. Applying to leave meant dismissal from your job, or at minimum, ostracism at work. Now, remember, most people were refused, at least initially. Maybe at some point along the way, they'll get a permission, but it takes time. And during that time, how do you feed your family? Well, if you lose your job, you're in, in Gahakted service. You're in big, you're in big trouble. So there had to be a, a, a fund basically paid for by the Soviet Jewry movement in the West to feed people, to give them basic sustenance that they shouldn't starve because they would often get fired. And then at some point in time in the 1970s, the Soviet Union outlaws the, uh, the receiving of gifts from abroad which meant that even if the uh, Western Soviet Jewry advocates wanted to help you out, they couldn't help you out because their stuff was confiscated. Uh, Applying to leave could result in the revocation of one's right of residence. This is a big deal. You know, Jews wanted to live, so long as they were in Soviet Russia, in the major cities of, of the Western part of the empire, meaning in Moscow, Leningrad, uh, or, you know, the, the Baltic Republic's, but not, you know, in uh, Vladivostok, or for that matter, even Barobijan, or the, the Ural Mountains. But if you lose your right of residence, who then gets to determine where you're going to live? The Soviet government. They will forcibly reassign you to some undesirable place. Okay. Uh, also, you could lose your citizenship and have your passport revoked. So all sorts of things, bad things could happen just for applying to leave. These factors dissuaded most Jews from applying throughout the 1960s, 70s, and early 80s. Now, many people did apply, and they were refused, but the vast bulk did not. Okay, well, who's paying attention to all this? You know, the Jews are being persecuted in the Soviet Union. Who's paying attention to this? 
The answer is, starting in 1962, the UN Human Rights Commission cares about these things. And in 1964, the United States Senate uh, is concerned with these things. And I, a couple of weeks ago, I read to you from a a, a Senate uh, committee report on the persecution of Soviet Jewry. But it's not until um, the mid-60s that American Jews begin to take this seriously. You have the Cleveland Council on Soviet Antisemitism in 1963, which was the first of the many local councils which would be established, a grassroots effort. The student struggle for Soviet Jewry in 1964 with Jacob Ber- Yaakov Birnbaum, Glenn Richter, and pl- plenty of others, some of whom you might have known personally. The Union of Councils was established in 1970, the National Coalition in 1971. And really, there were three different entities uh, that were focused on the plight of Soviet Jews. One was the Israeli government and its Lishkata Kesher, or Operation Nativ, which was an underground operation in Soviet Russia to make contact with potential emigres and to support them. And then in the United States, led by Moshe Dechter uh, out of Washington, D.C., to collect data and publish the data about Jewish life in the Soviet Union. So there's the Israeli government angle. There is the grassroots angle, people who just, they care about it and they want to do something, even though they're not institutionally important. And then there's the American Jewish establishment, the alphabet soup organizations, which were slow to act and then tried to dominate, as they always try to dominate the scene and muscle to the side, both the Israelis and the people, on the, the activists on the street who want to see more rough and tumble activities. Okay, well... Who are some of the important players in the Soviet Jewry movement in the West who uh, made a name for themselves among, for this, among other things that they did? So, as I mentioned, Birnbaum, but also Mark Kahana. Okay, Mark Kahana, who uh, was busy tussling with blacks on the streets of, of Brooklyn and Queens in mid 60s until such time as an Israeli representative said to him, what are you doing that for? Soviet Jewry needs you. And he changed his focus in 1968 that the JDL should be looking outwards towards the Soviet Union. Shlomo Karabach, who was the, the songster of the whole thing. Uh, Rabbi Avi Weiss, Rabbi Arthur Schneier, Rabbi Haskell Lukstein, and uh, many other rabbinical figures who made a name for themselves in this movement. So what was the Soviet Union doing in the 1970s to suppress Jewish life? Aside from refusing emigration possibilities, what else were they doing? The answer is punishing people for Jewish cultural expression, the teaching of Hebrew language, the teaching of Judaism, the spreading of Zionism. If you got caught with Leon Uris's exodus, you were in big trouble. If you got caught with Elif Milim, a thousand words, which was the Hebrew primer, you'd get yourself into trouble. And people could be sent to prison just for cultural activity alone. Um, Interestingly, what was not so severely uh, prosecuted was Jewish orthodoxy. Frumkite. The regime under Brezhnev did not think of mitzvah observance, kashris observance, as nearly as dangerous as Hebrew language studies. Why? 
because because Hebrew language meant Israel, meant politics, meant international diplomacy, as opposed to just Shabbos observance, which meant little to them, uh, nothing at all. And nothing's changed since the 30s, because last time we were talking about uh, Cyrillic uh, transliteration of Hebrew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that did that hit a a stop and then was reestablished, or it was always there? so. Yiddish died. Yiddish basically died a natural, a not so natural death. Uh, but Judaism in the Soviet Union was not illegal. Religion was not illegal. So there were always a handful of synagogues. Who went to them? Old people. People who had nothing to lose. We're not worried about you know, employment prospects. So the, the major cities had cathedral synagogues that were basically empty, but it had a minion going. And the rabbi was sometimes a KGB agent, or the gabbai was a KGB agent. Um, and it continued... When was Jewish expression by large numbers of people tolerated on an annual basis? And where? Which Yontif in particular? Simchas Torah. Simchas Torah at the Moscow Choral Synagogue was the annual gathering when thousands of Jews would be there who had no other connection to Judaism and were not there to celebrate Yontif, but just to show the, the pride they had in their Jewish identity and maybe to find a spouse or to find some, you know, networking possibilities. But that was the big deal. Simchas Torah at the major cathedral synagogues, the handful that were left in, in the Soviet Union. Okay. Now, the, the movement within Russia, within the Refusnik uh, crowd, were divided between those who were politically oriented and culturally oriented. Those who wanted agitation to move to Israel and those who were satisfied with just the teaching of Hebrew and the teaching of Jewish pride and Jewish cultural identity. But despite that division, uh, everybody knew each other and they had to work together. One major episode where people got uh, together for some specific end was the plane hijacking of 1970 which never happened. Why did it not happen? Because they were found out before they could get to the plane. Uh, So this was uh, supposed to be um, about 60 people on a small plane that was going to go across the border and to fly to Sweden. But someone on the inside must have spilled the beans or there were some sort of a KGB plant and everybody was arrested. Uh, the The ringleaders were Kuznetsov and Dimshitz. They were sentenced to death, although those, those death sentences were commuted. But many others also went to jail, including Yosef Mendelovich, who spent the next 11 years in jail until he was released in 1981. Uh, this was t- the 70s were tough times. Many of the prominent figures served significant time in, in prison. So you have Alexander Lerner, Ida Noodle, Natan Sharansky, Vladimir Slipak, Mendelovich. These were, became household names in the West among American Jews who cared about the, Soviet, uh, the fate of Soviet Jews. And what did the authorities do to punish people? So obviously prison, but where was this prison? So sometimes deep into Russia, very far, far away, you could not visit, uh, there were no visits allowed. Solitary confinement to have people become you know, deranged, that they should go nuts. And taking perfectly sane individuals and doing what to them? Putting them in mental institutions and claiming that they were deranged. Uh, and this was a way to, to, to nip in the bud whatever um, 
propaganda value their trial might have had. In other words, if a person can speak out against the regime because they're supposedly sane and, 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 and speaking coherently, well, if you put them in an insane asylum, not all those people don't know what they're talking about. They're nuts. Also, even if you were not going to go to jail, there was internal exile, meaning you, don't, you can't live in Moscow anymore. You can't live in Leningrad. You can't live in wherever, you, wherever Western Russian city you were living in. You got to go to Siberia. You got to go to the middle of nowhere and spend five years there. Out of sight, out of mind. Um, another strategy was to release, allow it to immigrate certain troublemakers. In other words, if somebody is that much of a rabble rouser and a factor in the refusenik movement, so what does the regime do? You can go. Nobody else can go, but you can go. And now they're gone and they're no longer able to operate. Okay. So, um, Jews were pawns in Soviet-U.S. relations. When the Soviets wanted something, they dangled the prospect of exit visas. When the Soviets perceived that they had nothing to gain because uh, detente had been uh, uh, rejected by the Americans, rather the Americans are more bellicose at that moment, then the flow of immigrants will stop. So when there's the prospect of detente or good things for the Soviets, let the, let the Jews go. Nothing happening, keep them, keep them a hostage. Kissinger opposed the linkage between foreign policy and another country's domestic human rights record. Why? Well, in general, Henry Kissinger doesn't care about human rights. But, uh, but also, he was concerned that it could be used against the United States. How? In the end. Indians, blacks. I mean, America has its own Averis. So if, if we're going to point a finger at the Soviets and say, you're bad to the Jews or you're bad to your ethnic minorities, then Brezhnev can say the same thing back to the United States. So he tried to separate out human rights records and the fate of superpower relations. He fought very hard against the Jackson-Vanik Amendment. So the Jackson-Vanik Amendment was something that was in the works for a few years under Nixon and was only signed into law under Ford after Nixon resigned. But what's happening here? The goal was to link most favored, tra- most favored nation status for trade purposes with a country's human rights record and willingness to allow the free flow of immigration. Uh, obviously, the Russians were against this, And Nixon wasn't happy with it, and Kissinger was very opposed to it. Who was promoting it? Well, most of the Jewish community, although some uh, myophysniks among the Jews opposed it. Um, The the Jewish establishment was slow to to, to be in favor of it, although they eventually came around. The grassroots supporters of Soviet Jewry were in favor of it. And Henry Scoop Jackson was the lead figure in making this happen. In the long run, did the Jackson-Vanik Amendment help or hurt Soviet Jewry? And uh, did it increase the flow of, of, of immigrants? The answer is it's hard to say. Critics would argue that it helped nothing at all and, in fact, stifled immigration because the, the Russians were angry over it. Others would say, no, no, American political pressure in the long run made a difference and helped. Okay. Um, when Ford lost to Carter in the 1976 election. Those in the Soviet Jewry movement were actually pleased that Carter had won 
because Carter had promised to link human rights uh, to foreign policy, which would seem to mean something favorable to the fate of Soviet Jews. In the long run, uh, actually, they were right, because in 1977, 78, and 79, there was an increase in immigration. And at the high point, uh, 50,000, 51,000 Jews left in 1979 to go you know, out of the Soviet Union somewhere else, whether to Israel or the United States. That number would drop off dramatically in 1980 and in the first Reagan administration. Why? Because Reagan was a hardliner. And in the last years of Brezhnev, things were very tense between the superpowers. Russia had nothing to gain and cracked down very hard on Soviet Jewry. When when Brezhnev died, there was a brief window when people thought that Andropov would be better on Jewish issues. Why? Because he liked American jazz music. So there was a thought that he's, oh, well, he's really a closet Westerner. Baloney. He was a KGB leader and was a bad dude all around. But fortunately, he died a year later. His successor was Chernenko, also a bad dude, and he died a year after that. So when Gorbachev takes over, now there's a question, well, what's going to happen? Will prisoners of Zion remain incarcerated? Or will there be the prospect of prisoner exchanges, release, free flow of immigration? Things were looking more favorable when Gorbachev took over. Who was... uh, uh, a, a, a hero as far as the Soviet Jewry movement was concerned, George Shultz. Shultz was a man who believed in human rights, sincerely believed in human rights, and wanted American policy to be determined on that basis. He was a friend of Avital Sharansky and of the Soviet Jewry movement and wanted to make things happen, and did. And Sharansky was released in 86, and better things were, were happening in the final years of Gorbachev's regime. Of course, it would take 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, for it to really progress uh, significantly. And in 1991, there was a massive uh, flow of Jewish immigrants out of the Soviet Union. Okay. Um, but what, it's, what were some of the things that American Jews did to raise consciousness of this issue? Not at the level of... Uh, American Jewish Committee or Congress or not the, the, the head honchos, but rather at the, the low level, the, 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 the Hamon Am level. So one thing was bar mitzvah twinning. Who remembers the bar mitzvah twinning? Okay, so you have a Jewish boy 13 or a Jewish girl 12. Okay, you'll, you, you have a Soviet Jewish kid who could not have a bar mitzvah. So you'll mention the kid's name from the pulpit that we remember, we, we, we remember uh, Nikolai today, that he didn't have his bar mitzvah when, when I'm having my bar mitzvah. That was a big deal. The other major thing was Solidarity Sunday. The, the marches on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan every spring for 14 years, uh, 15 years from 1971 through 1985. And Soviet Jury walkathons, which I remember as a kid, uh, taking place in Great Neck. So there were ways to uh, connect the youngest, the youngest generation of American Jews with the plight of Soviet Jewry. Uh, this became a lot easier under Reagan when the Soviet, the Soviet Union was anyway being identified as the evil empire. So for a young Jewish kid in America to recognize that the Soviet Union, which is generally speaking evil, is also specifically doing bad things to Jews was a, a very... Uh, uh, comprehensible thing. It, it, it was no longer this um, 
distant and removed concept of on the far side of the world, bad things are happening to the Jews. No, no, it made sense. The Soviet Union is evil and they're doing bad things to our people. Okay. Um, one last uh, topic w- w- within Soviet anti-Semitism. So um, ah, yeah, yeah. So under Khrushchev and then Brezhnev, there is suppression of of Jewish cultural life, but also there is um, the persecution of the Jew, even who's not interested in Jewish cultural expression, even just for being a Jew. And that meant that people who were not uh, culturally very Jewish at all who had, a, who had attempted to assimilate into Soviet society were likely at some point or another to throw in the towel on that assimilatory process. So who's move, who wants to move to Israel? Not necessarily people who were raised with Jewish conscience, were raised with Hebrew or Yiddish. They might have had nothing, literally nothing, of a Jewish cultural identity, but because the line on their internal passport said Jew, and that meant certain difficulties in education and housing and employment, then the solution to your problem is to leave, of course, but even to leave specifically to Israel, a country you know nothing about and may not even especially like once you get there. So it's not about or in the traditionally Jewish sense of the word. It's that people who have this uh, ethnic baggage that is very meaningless to them, all of a sudden it takes on meaning because it's, it's being held against you, so you now have to use it in your favor. If, I'm, if they're gonna if they're gonna if they're gonna hurt me for being a Jew, I might as well take advantage of being a Jew and go somewhere else. Go to that Israel. Is it easier to get to Israel than to the United States? Okay, so now we get to the last point for tonight. Once you get an exit visa, which was based upon an invitation to Israel from some relative who may have even been a phony relative, um, where do you actually go? Well, you go to Austria because that's the transit stop. You go to Vienna. But once you get to Vienna, are you going to take an LL plane to Israel? Or is the Joint Distribution Committee going to, or Hayas going to give you some shekels in your, in your pocket or American dollars in your pocket? And then you go where? United States of America. This is a big problem, a big machloikis between the Israeli government and American Jewish philanthropy, because there are too many people opting out The opt-in was, you say you're going to go to Israel, so go to Israel. The opt-out is, I said I was going to go to Israel, but once I'm beyond the borders and I can go wherever I want, I go to a Western country, United States. By the mid-70s, the percentage of opt-outs was reaching 60-70%. Most uh, emigres were not actually going to Israel, despite uh, the fact that they had claimed that that's their intended destination. So, you know, classic Zionism was negation of the diaspora. Diaspora is all bad. Even American diaspora is bad. What do you have to do as a good Jew? Go to, go to Palestine. Go to Israel. Okay? Eretz Israel, and only Eretz Israel. 
and the Israeli government feels like they're being abused. That here, we're, we're sending you these invitations on the premise that you're going to come here and we need you because we're a struggling population against a, a vast sea of Arabs who hate our guts and we need, we need more citizens. And you're going to go to America? Are you going to go to Brooklyn? Come on. Whereas the American Jewish philanthropy says, hey, what are we trying to do here? Save Jews from persecution. Well, we're going to save them and they'll choose to go wherever they want to go. Freedom of movement was the whole name of the game. The criticism of Russia was they're, they're, they're suppressing freedom of movement. And now you, the Israelis, want to do the same thing? These people want to go to America, they'll go to America. Who are you to stop them? So that machlokas went on for almost a decade between the mid-70s to the, through the mid-80s. And ultimately, who won? The American philanthropists won. And it, it was determined, that if you want to go to Israel, you go to Israel. If you don't want to go to Israel, you'll go somewhere else. You'll go somewhere else. And, and the Israelis had to learn to live with it. Uh, ultimately, you know, in the end, Israel got its fair share of Russian Jews in the, you know, the late 80s, early 90s maybe even more than its fair share, to the point that you know, the assimilatory process of Russians in Israel was no simple thing. So the fact that plenty went to America in the long run was fine. Okay, we'll stop here. And next week, we'll do American anti-Semitism. And the week after that, we'll discuss uh, Holocaust denial. And that'll be our last session. So we'll only have two more sessions, Ju- uh, June 2nd and June 9th. Okay, everybody be well. I remember very clearly.